Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care, the New Jersey Education Association, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, moving the region through air, land, rail, and sea. Choose New Jersey. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, here when you need us most. The Adler Aphasia Center, New Jersey Sharing Network, and by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, working for a healthier, more equitable New Jersey. Promotional support provided by Meadowlands Media, a print and digital business news network, and by NJ Biz, providing business news for New Jersey for more than 30 years, online, in print, and in person. Hi, everyone. Steve Adubato. Welcome to a very special edition of Think Tank right here on News 12 Plus. We're honored to kick off the program and tee things up with Evan Delgado, President of Programs and Planning at the Terrell Fund. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you too, Steve. Thanks for having me on. You got it. We're going to talk about child care in a second, the Reimagined Child Care Initiative we've been involved in for many years with the support of the Terrell Fund. But tell everyone what the Terrell Fund is. The Turtle Fund is a foundation based out of Montclair, New Jersey. We fund in New Jersey and Vermont, and we serve children and families, especially the youngest. So as we put up the Reimagined Child Care Initiative, focusing on accessible, affordable, quality child care, and also tee up the fact that in this half hour, you're going to meet the commissioner of the New Jersey State Department of Human Services, Sarah uh, Edelman. Why is the Department of Human Services, even though so many nonprofits that Terrell funds including funding our programming around Reimagined Child Care. Why is the state government, particularly that department, huge, so important in the child care discussion? Yeah, that's a great question, Steve. You know, I would say pretty much every agency of state government has some kind of overlap with child care, but I think it's especially strong with the Department of Human Services. And that's really because at its core, it's an agency that is meant to serve and protect children, families, individuals, and essentially make sure that people are secure, that they are stable, and that they have opportunities. And while I haven't had the pleasure to meet Commissioner Edelman, I've heard really wonderful things about the effort she's leading and about her commitment to this issue area and many others that are related to it. So I would say childcare is a public good. It should be a public good. It is a universal good. It is something that working families need to be stable and to be secure. And I think it fits perfectly in with the priorities of the department. You know, when we started the Reimagined Child Care Initiative, mental health with our children was not as high a priority as it is now. Where does that fit for the Terrell Fund, mental health in our children? Yeah, it is one of our core priorities alongside child care and some other issue areas as well. It's something we think about day in, day out. And I think an issue that we know has been exacerbated by many of our systemic inequalities and quite frankly, by the past three years or so. Um, I think we all carry very difficult experiences with us, and especially for young children, for youth, right, to make sense of the collective trauma that we all just faced 
is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So I think all the agencies, all the nonprofit leaders, the community leaders that are out there increasing access to high quality mental health care for very young children, for youth, families, for adults, for everyone, right? I think the key word here is access. Um, and another key word is equity when it comes to this issue. And it's a core priority for the Terrell Fund. And that is, uh, you've been listening to Evan Delgado, President of Programs and Planning at the Terrell Fund. Our partners, those who are folks at the Terrell Fund supporting Reimagined Child Care. We kick off this special edition of Think Tank here on News 12 Plus with very compelling, important conversations uh, about child care, particularly with the Commissioner of the Department of Human Services. Evan, thank you, my friend. Mm -hmm. This is Think Tank. We're now joined by Dr. Edmund Achapong, who is Program Director for Secondary Education at Seton Hall University, one of our higher ed partners. Good to see you, doctor. Thanks for having me, Steve. So tell us exactly what hip hop, hip hop education is. By the way, hip hop, I was just told by Usami, our producer, 50 years, celebrating 50 years of hip hop. How do we mark that? Yeah, you know, hip hop is a beautiful culture and genre of music that emerged from the Bronx in the 1970s. And we're currently, this whole year, we're celebrating this 50 year um, of the culture. There are a lot of activities and events that are happening all across the country all across the globe and particularly here um, in the Bronx, New York, where we're celebrating this like this phenomenal culture that's that's really emerged from, you know, young folks and youth um, from black immigrant communities just trying to make sense of their communities and having opportunities to share their experiences with the world. So hip hop education means what? Well, you know, hip hop education is the merging of hip hop culture and within educational contexts and spaces. You know, when we think about traditional teaching and learning and traditional educational spaces, you know, we recognize that, you know, education is, can often be Eurocentric and aligns to Eurocentric values. And oftentimes really not incorporate, you know, values of, of other folks, right? So when we think about hip hop and education, particularly within my work and my research, I'm thinking about how do we leverage the different creative elements of hip hop, which include the MC, the B-boy, the graffiti artist, the DJ, and now the self. And how can we leverage those elements and supporting young people um, in learning and engaging and developing their identities as it relates to whatever content they're trying to engage in. So, so again, I, I, I struggled with science um, all the whole time, doesn't matter. But STEM, science, technology, education, math. Yeah. So it's so interesting. Only 34% of black students complete STEM degrees um, compared to 58% of white students. So when it comes to hip hop, education, pedagogy, if you will. It's, I think you told our producers that breakdancing can be used to teach different states of matter. Yeah. Huh? I didn't understand it the first time. I might be able to understand it now. Please help us, Professor. Yeah, you know, when we, when we think about hip hop, you know, a lot of us see hip hop as, as a genre of music, which it is, right? But I, I want folks to recognize that hip hop is a very nuanced and, and beautiful culture. So when we talk about breakdancing in particular, like, you know, we see hip hop dances and hip hop dances maybe at concerts, at events. But when we think about breakdancing and bringing these elements into the classroom, it's really about like taking the, the framework and the philosophy of these elements. So breakdancing really aligns to kinesthetic learning, right? And recognizing that young people in schools, they have diverse needs, learning needs, right? So young people might, you know, not want to sit in their seat for the whole day, right? And they may not learn the best in that way. So when we want to leverage breakdance in the classroom, you know, one way it could look like in the science classroom, um, as it relates to my research, is like, how can we get young people to imagine themselves as 
the content, right? Their physical being, their physical bodies themselves, and literally move around the cl the classroom, the space, um, in reference to that. So when we think about the, the different states of matter, we know that we have gas, we have solid, and we have liquids, right? We know that solids have a particular composition. Solid molecules are are you know they're they're held tightly. Um, they don't necessarily take the shape of the container. They have a rigid structure, shape, or form. And I remember teaching this to my sixth grade students in the Bronx years ago, and they understood the concept, but it was it was really heady for them, right? They 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 understood the composition of the molecules, but they didn't really have a deep understanding of the of the concepts. So how'd so, you bring break dancing into it? Well, the, the students were actually breakdancing, but I was getting them to, to be kinesthetic learners, right? Which is in reference to breakdancing. So I said, you know what? You guys all act as molecules. I want you all to stand behind your seats and, and assume that you each student in the classroom is a molecule. Now the whole class is a solid, right? The, the classroom is a shape of a container. So the students, you know, slowly, they understood the composition of, of solid molecules and how they interact and engage. So all the students started to line up on the side of the classroom in a structured shape or form. Then I asked them, so what do we know about solid molecules and what do we know about molecules and matter? Are they ever like stagnant or staying still? And the students like, no, they're always moving, even if they're in, in place. So the students started shaking in their, in their spots and vibrating, right? So this idea of you know recognizing that students like to move around and like to engage, but to break dancers and drawing that in reference to how they learn and understand content has been really remarkable in the connection to hip hop and education. Where'd your passion for this come from? I'm curious about how your colleagues yeah. have reacted to it. I'll ask that in a second. Where'd your passion come from for this? Oh man, you know, my passion, it, it comes, I'm, I'm a young person that grew up in the Bronx, New York, the, the birthplace of hip hop. Um, and as, as a child, as, as, a, as a young person, you know, navigating schools, you know, I, I was a, you know, I was marked as a gifted and talented student, but I never saw myself really connecting with the content within the classes that I, that I navigated as a, as a child. Um, when I got to high school, I had this teacher who used hip hop as a way to spark our interest in a physics class. You know, I always loved science, but I just never, never really connected with the concept. I remember being in a high school, my high school physics class, learning conceptual physics and studying, you know, rappers chains and talking about, Hey, the pen, the, the pen, this can be a pendulum, right. And doing calculations and learning conceptual physics through hip hop, right. Through the, through the, through the, the culture that I engage in outside of school. And that really was what sparked my interest. Um, and what led me to use these practices when I was a teacher in the Bronx and what led me to become a researcher in this field. So I'm curious about this. To what degree, if at all, yeah. doctor, is race relevant here? Meaning your experience, the experience of many African-American students in urban communities, not the same, but there are obviously certain similarities. For a white kid from the suburb, right, whether it's Seton Hall or any other place, typical, I don't even know what typical means. Do you teach it any differently? Is it any less relevant? And how the heck do you do that in a diverse setting? Yeah, great question, Steve. And I get this question often. You know, when we think about hip-hop and hip-hop music and hip-hop culture, like for me and my work, it's, it's really targeted for Black and Brown students, right, to support them in developing identities and, and fully connected to science content, but when it comes to teaching various students from different races, it's all the same, right? When we think about white students, they benefit from this as well. Hip hop really is anchored in a multimodal way of learning, right? So we talk about breakdancing and we take the kinesthetic aspect of that, right? How do we get young people to move around in the classroom and make sense of the content while engaging and embodying the content? And No different for white kids, black kids, no different. No. Relate I, the same. 
relate the same. When we, when we think about hip hop, you know, white youth are the top consumer of hip hop music, right? Um, so they they're engaging the culture just as just as similar and this is the same as black students, right? They might be different connections and different points of entry, but there are there are similar connections, right? And the, the the work is not just about hip hop music; it's really about the idea of multimodal learning. Wow. And real quick, uh, any pushback from colleagues? Um, not pushback per se, but I would say that my colleagues generally don't necessarily understand it. At face value, a lot of folks don't understand it at face value. When we talk about bringing hip hop into schools, you know, I, I really try to advocate is, you know, we all of our students, regardless of race and background, are diverse learners and have various diverse learning needs. And when we bring hip hop in these multimodal ways of learning, we're able to meet our students where they are, right? Regardless of how they learn and how they connect to the content. Thank you, Professor. I appreciate it. Well said, well done, important conversation. We'll make sure we catch up with you again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You guys stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We are honored to be joined by the Commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Human Services, Sarah Edelman. Sarah, good to have you with us. Hey, Steve. It's good to be with you. Um, Commissioner, let me ask you this. When it comes to federal dollars, I'm going to jump right into this because we've had several guests today, different areas, whether it's childcare, education, mental health issues. Hey, you know, the feds gave New Jersey so much money as it relates to COVID. They're sitting on that money. Explain to folks what federal money is in your department and whether those dollars are being expended. And if not, why not? It's a great question, an important one, because in our department, Human Services, our programs are supporting New Jerseyans um, across their lifespan from uh, child care all the way through um, aging and senior services. And individuals across New Jersey needed services and supports, many for the first time as a result of the pandemic. And so all of this federal funding that we were receiving in New Jersey was one of our top priorities to be able to get that out to the folks who most need it. And that has been a focus of ours over the three-year public health emergency. Um, we at Human Services, we have programs in mental health and addiction services, disability services, food assistance, child care assistance, aging and senior services, disability services. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. We're also the state New Jersey um, family care Medicaid agency. We administer Medicaid benefits in New Jersey. So there are lots of ways that we've been directly delivering benefits to New Jersey households and individuals since the beginning of the emergency. As an example, New Jersey SNAP, our food assistance benefits program, we have been able to deliver more than $3 billion in additional assistance throughout the public health emergency because of a lot of the federal funds that we received. Um, the same thing in, in Medicaid, for instance, we are now serving 30% more individuals who are covered in New Jersey's Medicaid program um, since before the public health emergency. So there are lots of ways across all of our programs that, um, that we're delivering direct services and benefits to folks. So let's do this. We're going to put up the website um, for the 
New Jersey Department of Human Services, but I'm curious about this. As it relates to the issue of food insecurity, how much worse is the food insecurity situation because of inflation? Well, there were kind of across the board economic impacts to New Jersey households as a result of COVID-19. And food security is definitely one of those areas. Feeding America estimates that there are about 650,000 food insecure individuals here in New Jersey. Um, but we definitely saw an increase in the need for assistance benefits throughout the last three years. Our SNAP um, enrollment went up about 40% over the course of the public health emergency. To be clear, SNAP is what was previously known to be food stamps. That's right. It's gone up. The number of people signing up for SNAP gone up dramatically? We had about a 40% increase over the public health emergency. And the role of your department in that regard, be specific so people can understand what you do. So in food security, um, there are a number of ways people can get food assistance in New Jersey. One of them is, is SNAP food assistance. You, uh, When you sign up and receive benefits for SNAP, you receive an EBT card that you can use at the well, grocery you know, store. There, I know in government there are a fair number of acronyms. What is that card and what does it stand for? That's right. It's an electronic benefits card. Uh, it works just like a credit card. You can use it at the grocery store. It has your SNAP benefits on it, uh, and you can use it directly to purchase groceries. And one of the things that we did that was really important uh, during COVID was that we also were able to expand access um, for online grocery shopping and delivery using SNAP cards as well. Okay. So, so here at DHS, you sign up for SNAP, you receive your benefits, um, and you know there are other ways that people can get support too across government. There are food banks and food pantries. Um, some individuals may be eligible for WIC or other assistance benefit programs that I'm also sorry, help families. Uh, WIC. Women, program, infants, and children. That's right. And it's administered in the Department of Health here in New Jersey. There are a variety of ways that individuals can get food assistance benefits. Here Let's do this. Let's talk. By the way, I am struck by the number of acronyms in government, um, and, but the need for us those of us in the media to help people interpret what that means. It can be a lot of inside jargon. Let's talk about childcare. Our initiative, Reimagine Childcare, the website will go up right now. What is the role of the New Jersey Department of Human Services as it relates to helping to provide accessible, affordable, quality childcare, particularly for those who are struggling financially? Childcare is so critical to economic success in our state and across the nation. And we knew uh, as a result of COVID that childcare needed to be an area of focus because a thriving childcare system means a stronger economy. It means more jobs, more inclusive economic growth. It means better outcomes for our kids and more support that is so vital to New Jersey families. And so here at the Department of Human Services, we have a program uh, that helps families afford the cost of childcare. It's a childcare assistance. It's a childcare assistance program, and it's for um, families with lower incomes to help them afford the cost of their childcare. So you can visit our website. It's childcarenj.gov. Say it again. Childcarenj.gov. Go ahead. And that's where families can go to find out if you're eligible and to sign up for childcare assistance benefits. This helps. Um, we we pay your child care provider directly uh, to help you with your child care costs. And 
Um, this is, has been a tremendous area of focus for Governor Murphy and our administration in partnership with the legislature. We have, since the beginning of Governor Murphy's administration, added over a billion dollars in additional funding through our child care assistance program. And we've uh, more than doubled our infant and child care rates that we're paying to providers to help expand access to more families and to build a broader network of providers participating in our program. The last area I want to explore is mental health. Now, mental health is not issues of mental health. They're not dealt with in one state agency. It's just it's just multifaceted and there are a whole range of agencies and not-for-profits and others involved. What is the role of your department as it relates to helping to increase access to mental health services for those who have a very hard time accessing mental health services? We are the state's lead mental health and addiction agency that serves adults. So as you said, there are different access points across government, um, depending on the individual and what their needs are. But here at Human Services, we have been really focused on um, helping build the provider network across New Jersey, the social service providers that you talked about, the psychiatrists and psychologists and um, clinicians across the state that are available to serve individuals uh, in all of their mental health needs and and in addressing their addiction needs. So, we, so if someone goes on the website, I'm sorry for interrupting, if someone goes on the website, it's not you're going to provide them a mental health professional, but can you direct them to an organization that could help? Uh, absolutely. We have a, a hotline for individuals needing addiction support. It's Reach NJ. And Reach NJ. That's right. Um, and uh, also through our website, folks can access information about mental health providers across the state. Of course, um, we always encourage any individuals experiencing um, thoughts of suicide or suicidal ideation or those concerned about a loved one to call 988. But we also um, oversee the 988 lifeline system here in New Jersey and uh, have um, since last summer worked to stand up that system in New Jersey so that there is always someone to call and somewhere to go for individuals who are in need of assistance. Commissioner, I want to thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you. Good to see you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. I want to welcome Bob Garrett, CEO of Hackensack Meridian Health. Good to see you, Bob. Good to see you too, Steve. Violence as a public health issue. Put it in context, please. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, we're seeing uh, significant increases in, uh, in violence uh, at our hospitals and um, in schools, um, in society in general. You know, the stats are really overwhelming, Steve. Um, it's really, and I just, I, I just shake my head when I think about this, but gun violence now is the biggest killer of uh, children in the, uh, in the U.S., which is really staggering. 48,000 people in the U.S. died by gunfire last year. So, We've declared it along with uh, 50 other health systems across the country as a public health um, emergency. And what we're trying to do is, um, is certainly prevent it wherever possible. I'm sorry, Bob, why do you think there's such an uptick? 
Well, I think I think part of it has to do with um, with the pandemic and the and the um, and the mental health issues that have related uh, have been a result of that pandemic. Right. I think that's a that's certainly a, a major uh, factor, uh, Steve. But you know, we we actually saw that you know that the the number of violent incidents going up even before the pandemic. So it was going in that direction. But I think the pandemic certainly exacerbated those uh, those trends. So what we're focused on is prevention. And then we're also focused on uh, being able to um, ha help victims and their families of, uh, of gun violence. So on the prevention side, uh, again, we have, uh, we have signed a pledge uh, along with 50 other health systems across the country. We're part of a, a consortium um, that um, is um, being led out of uh, Northwell Health uh, in, uh, in New York. And uh, what we're trying to do is, is find strategies to um, help prevent um, gun violence. And we think by declaring it a public health emergency, maybe staying out of the politics related to the Second Amendment and, and guns, but just understanding that wh whatever your position is on the Second Amendment, this is a public health emergency. And we have to, whether you're a gun owner or you're not a gun owner, we have to take steps to try to prevent this senseless um, killing, particularly of, uh, of young people like children and adolescents. So. We're, we're working with, uh, with these other health systems to find the right strategies, but we also have um, put in programs that um, help victims of uh, gun, uh, gun Bob, violence as well. Uh, we, we actually, I'm sorry for interrupting. Uh, we actually had one of your physician leaders engaged in something called Project HEAL. Yes. What is that and how is it connected to the fight against prevention of violence as a public health issue? So uh, Project HEAL actually is a program that, um, that helps um, victims of gun violence or their, uh, their families. So it's a, a program that's funded through uh, federal funds um, as well as uh, state funds. And uh, we, we set up Project HEAL at Jersey Shore University Medical Center. We hope to expand it at some of our other sites. But what it does is um, we help those victims by um, by referring them to the right um, the right help. They might need behavioral health um, types of assistance. They might need um, social uh, assistance. They might need additional uh, medical assistance. Also, it's a crisis for their families. So uh, we also uh, make referrals for their families. And I'm happy to say the program just celebrated its two year anniversary, and we've already helped over 400 uh, families, which is really really significant. And we're hoping that um, it's because it's been so successful that we can demonstrate that it's a model that should be replicated, not just throughout New Jersey, but throughout the country. And we're going to start uh, at Hackensack Meridian by offering it at some of our other hospitals as well. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, first, I'm going to disclose a couple of things. One, that I teach in the Hackensack Meridian Health Physician Leadership Academy, and I've gotten to know many of the physicians um, there, many of whom are involved in dealing with those who are victims of violence, um, and also that HMH is a longtime underwriter of our programming. But Bob, one more quick follow-up on this. You talked in our previous interview about fiscal challenges, long-term fiscal challenges at HMH and other healthcare systems, hospital systems across the nation face. A lot of it, much of it COVID-related. But you're also now talking about violence as a public health issue, which only expands upon the demands of hospital and hospitals, hospitals and hospital systems. Is there a disconnect between A, the need to cut expenses, be more fiscally conservative, while you're expanding programs to deal with public health issues like violence? 
It, there's a tremendous uh, disconnect there. And you know, our mission is to transform healthcare, it's to improve the health of our communities. And a public health uh, crisis like uh, gun violence and violence in general is something that's dear, near and dear to our mission. So we have to, we have to continue to uh, fund programs like that. But that's why we're, we're asking for assistance from our partners, whether it be the state government, the federal government, to fund programs like Project Heal, because these are tough times for healthcare networks and for hospitals. But honestly, as you're, you're pointing out, the, the demand for these types of services and this type of help is, is incredible. It's never been, uh, there's never been more of a need for it than now. And that also includes behavioral health, mental health issues, violence, a whole range of issues. Bob Garrett is the chief executive officer of Hackensack Meridian Health. Bob Warren, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me, Steve. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. We will see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care, the New Jersey Education Association, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Choose New Jersey, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, the Adler Aphasia Center, New Jersey Sharing Network, and by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Promotional support provided by Meadowlands Media and by NJ Biz. I am alive today thanks to my kidney donor. I am traveling and more active than ever before. I'm alive today thanks to my heart donor. I'm full of energy and back singing in my church choir. I'm alive today thanks to my lung donor. I'm breathing easy and I'm enjoying life's precious moments. There are about 4,000 people in New Jersey waiting for a life-saving transplant. Donation needs diversity. For more information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit njsharingnetwork.org. Hi, I'm Ira Robbins. At Valley, we believe in helping our local neighborhoods and improving the lives of everyone we serve. We work hard every day to make a difference for our employees, clients, and communities. That's why we're proud to support the programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation.